Let's take our Bibles and open them together to our study of the book of Revelation. We are continuing to walk through this great and marvelous book, and we have found our way into chapter 13. You remember that beginning in chapter 12, just after the seventh trumpet of God's judgment has been sounded, that John is now being given a a view of the tribulation from the perspective of heaven, or or maybe even it would be better to say, or even more accurately to say, this is a view of what is going on behind the scenes. What is going on behind the scenes of all that is taking place in the tribulation. This is the who and the what of what is happening during the tribulation. And of course, we know that there are still... Uh, seven judgments to come. Fourteen have taken place, at least in our study. Fourteen, seven seals and seven trumpet judgments. And there are seven final judgments to come. They will be unleashed upon the earth as God's final fury against all sin and all uh, rejection, all that stands out of wickedness against His holiness. Chapter 16, in fact begins that chapter with these very words. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. So upon the completion of this look from heaven onto the what is going on behind the scenes, the we are, we are uh, catapulted, if you will, back into what is taking place in the tribulation and the final fury of God in His wrath against the wickedness of men and sin. And so from chapter 12 until chapter 15, we're taking a step back to see in greater detail the, the rampant wickedness and judgment that is to come. And in chapter 13, we are introduced to a significant player in all of this. He is known as the beast. This is the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist. We saw the woman, that was Israel. We saw the man-child representing Jesus Christ. We've seen Satan himself, the dragon of old, as we saw in chapter 12. We've even seen Michael the archangel and his angels waging war against Satan and all of his demons. And now we see the beast. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13, Read down through verse 10, it says this, And he stood on the sand and of the seashore. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast, which I saw, was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle 
that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. (coughs) Excuse me. So here we are introduced to this ultimate puppet of Satan. This isn't Satan in human form. This isn't a demon taking on some kind of human way. This is a human being that is being controlled by Satan himself. This is the ultimate puppet of Satan. And he will be like no other human being that has ever been up to this point by way of influence and by way of charisma and by way of global acceptance. He will rise above everyone. We do not know his name. We do not know from where he will arise. We do not know from which part of the world he will come. But we do get a description of his makeup here in chapter 13. We've looked at this in the past. And I just want to quickly cover it again so you know where we are in our notes. In verse 1 all the way down to the first part of verse 3. We get a description of this one called the beast. (coughs) He has a composite nature, verse 1 tells us. He has a composite character, verse 2. And he also has an amazing acclaim in verse 3. Verse 1 says, He comes up out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads. On his horns, ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. This is just who he is by way of his uh, nature. He is a composite in nature. The horns being power, the heads being Uh, rulership and on his horns being the diadems which are crowns that is to say that he is a conglomerate if you will or the makeup of what appears to be some kind of conglomeration of power worldwide power and he has a uh, composite character in that he is like a leopard like a bear like a lion that is he is swift he is powerful and he is fierce in his very makeup and then of course He has an amazing acclaim, thank you, he has an amazing acclaim in that he appears as if he's had some kind of mortal wound that seemingly was healed. So this is an incredible person. So incredible, in fact, that he will be able to make a seven-year peace covenant with the nation of Israel, of which he will break halfway through. He will have the power of many nations on his side, and he will have global influence. And, just to highlight all of that, it seems as if he even has Satan bowing down to him, because verse 2 says, And the dragon gave him his power and his throne. And great authority. Of course, we understand that this is all just simply a last-ditch effort upon the character of Satan on his part to deceive the masses. This is what Satan's desire is, to overcome people so they will not know Jesus Christ. And of course, he uses many forms in order to do that. And there is another beast that will come. We'll see him beginning in verse 11. But notice in verse 14 of the same chapter, the second beast is used 
by Satan to deceive. And it says in verse 14, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, that is the first beast, the Antichrist, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. So apparently even this second beast, who you'll know to be the false prophet, has a sense in which he can even make appear this image of the beast to even come to life. You say, why does God want us to know this? Why does God want us to know these things? He wants us to know these things so that we will not be deceived. So that we as His people will not succumb to the things in which they're going on during the time so that we will be able to be discerning during any happenings that go on even prior to the tribulation period so that we will not be held captive by other winds of doctrine so that we would not worship anything other than God himself. And this then becomes the second identifier of the beast. You have the description of the beast in just the first three verses and then you have the, ador- the adoration for the beast. The adoration for the beast in verse 3. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him. And then over in verse 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. I hope you notice, as I read just those few verses, the change that took place. There is a change that happened just in that few short words. Did you notice that people went from being awed by this person to worshiping this person? And in doing so, they went to the worship of Satan. Verse 3 says, and the whole earth was amazed Amazed. They were astonished by this one called the beast, by what is taking place. They're astonished at what is happening and what this one is doing. And they go from amazement, you notice, in verse 3, right there in verse 4, and they worshipped the beast. This is now, folks, global religion. This is global religion. It's one thing to follow a man. It's entirely a whole other thing to worship the person as if they are some kind of God. That's what verse 4 says they are doing. They worshipped this one and they worshipped, notice, the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? This is Satan worship at a global level. Remember what Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 4 said? That the Antichrist will take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. Listen, the Antichrist isn't satisfied with worldwide popularity. The Antichrist is not going to be satisfied or want global notoriety. That's not the aim. He's not satisfied with being some kind of uh, religious or political celebrity. No, he wants to be worshipped. He wants to be worshipped. And so in verse 4, all of those people who refuse to love Jesus Christ, those people who refuse to bow the knee to the gospel of Jesus Christ, all those who refuse to repent and be saved in the name of Jesus Christ, they will be deceived to the point 
that they are literally worshiping the man as if he's God. This is global worship. Global satanic worship. Notice, even more revealing than worshiping the man, they worship because, they're worshiping Satan ultimately, because Satan himself gave his authority to the beast. So they worship the dragon as a result of Satan himself apparently coming under the authority of the beast. We know who the dragon is, obviously, Satan himself. So that now in worshiping the beast, they are really worshiping the one who's behind it all because it seems as if Satan even himself worships this one because he has given him his own power. You say, how do you know that? Because the end of the verse says, who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? Who has greater power? Who has greater wisdom? Who has greater knowledge? I mean, even Satan himself has given him his power. Who is like that? And in the end, the group of people upon the earth who do not know Jesus Christ, who refuse Christ, as one commentator describes it, are a worldwide group of Satan worshipers. Seems rather amazing, doesn't it? What a deception. And were it not for the truth of the Word of God... All men might be caught in the lie. All of us could be caught in the lie were it not for the truth of the Word of God, were it not for the reality of the words in the Word of God that say, but God, but God, by the way of His choosing to save, we might be in that same predicament. Chose to save all who will believe. Notice in verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship Him with the exception of The exception of those whose names have been written in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. You see, this is the exception clause of Scripture. There are those who will be worshiping Satan himself, and yet there are those who will not be worshiping Satan, and only those who will not be worshiping Satan are those who know Jesus Christ. You say, well, do these people know that they're worshiping Satan? Do they have a knowledge of that? I don't think so fully, but this is, in fact, worldwide religion. This is worldwide, Christless uh, devotion to uh, an object of praise. It is devoid of any truth about God. It's full exaltation of, of the achievement of greatness. That's what it will be. It will be full of liberalism, full of, of unchallenged tolerance. This will be a religion that is full of an anything-goes expression of worship. Whatever you want to do is fine. Don't worry about expression. It's just an expression of worship. It doesn't matter what it is. You want to roll around in the dirt? Go ahead. It's a full of the perpetuation of human happiness as the highest good kind of religion. Anti-God in every way, steeped in humanism, Some, for sure, will know, and even now know, they are blatant Satan worshipers. We even have those in our world today who claim to worship Satan himself. But most won't even realize that wrapped in the package of health, wealth, and prosperity, as is so proclaimed today, is the reality of the ultimate worship of Satan who stands against God in every way and against anything righteous, whose desire is simply to exalt self. This is the worship that is behind 
the worship to the Antichrist. These people think they're worshiping this man. They think they're worshiping and exalting this human, but they are really worshiping Satan because he's the one who gives all his authority to this man. And, by the way, this worship is really coming by way of enforcement. In other words, this isn't just something that everybody's going to go, oh, hey, I think I'll decide to worship that. No, it's, it's coming by way of enforcement of the false prophet. The false prophet who's working in concert with the beast. The one we'll see and be introduced to next time, beginning in verse 11. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. This is the false prophet. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. Notice verse 12. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. So he's like a, a, an emissary. He's like an ambassador of the first beast. And he makes the earth and all those who dwell in it to worship the first beast who has the fatal wound that was healed. You see, this is a, a forced worship. This is if you don't want to worship, there's going to be grave consequences for not worshiping the beast. You see, this is the job of the false prophet. He makes the, the beast to be believable as a resurrected God. For those who will not worship the beast, there's a tragic outcome. Just turn over to verse 15. This is talking about the false prophet. And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. So there's a sense in which this one who is the false prophet will be given the powers to do even quote unquote miraculous things, even making an image of the beast seem as if that image is alive, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be what? Killed. You don't worship the beast, you're done it's over death so the worship of the beast is enforced this is global religion enforced as law and yet it is complete devotion by the people it's enforced but it's an enforced devotion and they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast verse 4 and they worship the beast saying who is like the beast who is able to wage war with the beast? This is deceptive, enforced devotion. It's ironic that these words are deceptive adoration, and yet they are mocking words at those who truly know God. <clears throat> In past times, these words were used as words to describe God, who is like you among the gods, O Lord, Exodus 15, verse 11 says. Who is like you, O God? Psalm 35, 10 says, Lord, who is like you? Isaiah 46, verse 5, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me, says God? And yet here, in the worship of Satan, in the worship of the beast, to which is really worship of Satan, they are saying, Who is like the beast? These are mocking words, mocking, using the same words that were used to worship God as if it's God Himself on the scene. These were always words used to worship God himself. And here Satan's puppet is just being adored by the people. Same words. Who is like the beast? Satan is mocking God. Satan's always been mocking God, always trying to defame God, always trying to defame the name of God. 
And here Satan is mocking God as the people deceivingly worship. You read through this and you think about your own life. You think about the life we live here on this world. And we see the world history moving forward. And we ask ourselves the question, how does man get like this? I mean, this seems pretty far to go. I mean, there are religions in the world. There are false religions. But even now, there's, there's true Christianity. I mean, this is far to go where, where the globe is enraptured in this worship of this man, worship of Satan. It seems so far-fetched in some ways. How is man going to get like this? Everybody other than the elect worshiping Satan. Well, I want to take us back just for a moment to Romans. Romans chapter 1. Because Romans chapter 1, we get a description really of the spiral down into the cesspool of humanism. Romans chapter 1, Paul, of course, is laying the base argument for why everybody is guilty. While no one can have an excuse before God, no one can say to God, hey, I never knew you. God has by his grace and through his sovereign power made himself known. That's what verses 18 and 19 clearly say. Verses 20 and 21 clearly uh, extol that. There's uh, his attributes are clearly seen. There is an intelligence about God in every man. That's his point. But verse 21 For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. There is a knowledge about God, and yet even though man knows God, he doesn't acknowledge God, doesn't honor Him as God, doesn't give thanks to God, and therefore becomes futile in his speculations, and his foolish heart is darkened. So there is now a self-imposed ignorance. He professes to be wise, verse 22, but he's really a fool. We read about that this morning, 1 Corinthians, where... The gospel is foolishness to men. It's the thing that will save. It's the only thing that will save. It's the only medicine that can soothe the sickened heart of the soul. And yet man refuses it. He professes to be wise, says he knows all things, says he knows the way of even being a good human and even getting into glory. And yet he's a fool. Why? Because he exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and crawling things. He is worshiping the the creature rather than the creator he's worshiping himself he has a self-imposed ignorance even though he has a divine intelligence given by god so what happens what happens god therefore verse 24 gives him over god says okay little man who is so wise in your own professing wisdom of your own fallen humanness have it your way god gives him over to the lusts of his heart to impurity That his body might be dishonored among them. Why did that happen? Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So you see this progression now of verse in verse 24, beginning at the top in verse 18, he has this intelligence given to him by God about God. He knows about God, and yet he has this self-imposed ignorance because he's turned his back on God. And because he's turned his back on God, God says, okay, have it your way. Restrain off. Go to the lusts of your heart so that you are dishonored among men. You have this progression of now indulgence. And so because he turns his back on God... That gives him over the lust of his heart. He's exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Fully embracing the lie. And for this reason, verse 26, God gives him over to degrading passions. 
If there ever was a time in our world where degrading passions are paraded and applauded, it is our day and age. This is a qualitative state of the heart. He's been given over to the full expression of his heart, and therefore women are exchanging the natural function for that which is unnatural, the men doing the same thing, burning in their desire for one another, committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. This is full-fledged indulgence. Indulgence of the lusts of the heart, indulgence of the passions of their very sinfulness, because, not because they can't uh, have that uh, reined in, but simply because they've turned their back on God. They've refused God. They, as verse 1 says, have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And so God says, have it your way. What you see happening today and what you will see getting worse and worse in our day and age as the world continues on in world history is not a progression of man's thinking so that man is now more enlightened in his mind and, hey, isn't everything great? And we just let live and live and let live. No, this is a spiral downward, worse and worse, and the sinfulness of man being allowed by God to show itself for all that it is. And in verse 28, it says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer... Now they don't want to have God at all. God gives them over to a depraved mind. God says, okay, you're full-fledged. So now they do those things that are improper. They're filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. This is complete and utter self-centered independence. This is, it doesn't really matter what everybody else is doing. I'm going to do it my way, the way I want. This is full-fledged independence. I don't care what anybody else thinks. They are gossips and slanderers. They're haters of God. They're arrogant, boastful, and inventors of evil. It doesn't matter what anybody says. I'm going to do wrong to others simply for my own pleasure. I'm going to take things as if... uh, I could do it myself. I'm going to boast about everything. I'm going to put myself above everybody else. It doesn't really matter. I'm going to stand against all authority. When it says disobedient to parents, I think that's what it's saying. It starts in the home and it goes full full force. It's disobedient to any kind of authority. No understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God... What ordinance? The one that I'm going to say right here, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. The wages of sin is death. That's the ordinance of God. Every man knows that. Every man has been given that knowledge by God. It goes all the way back to verse 18. There's this intelligence of God that man has about God. And although man knows that, they not only do those things, but they give hearty approval to those who practice. How does man get to the place where he worships Satan himself? fully rejects God. And that's the end result. That's the end result. So go back to Revelation 13. Behind the scenes in the tribulation, all of this is taking place. The beast has been described. The beast is now being worshipped. And look at the beast's operation. This is the third. The beast's operation. Verses 5 through 7. And there was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words. Sounds like Romans chapter 1, doesn't it? Speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. That's three and a half years. Three and a half years in this way after he breaks the covenant, after he raises himself up as God in the temple. 
And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. We must not forget as we... As we read this tragic reality that will take place upon the earth, we cannot forget that while it may be that the beast seems to be having some kind of control over all things and over all men, that the word given here reminds us and comforts us that the arrogance and authority and power has been given to this one, allowed to be given to this one from Satan by our great God. God is still in control. He is the one who is in ultimate control of all of this and nothing happens without his approval. Notice, even things done against him. And it was given to him to speak arrogant words and blasphemies against God. Even the things that go against God, God has allowed for his purpose. It is God allowing this. And blasphemy here is the central focus of the operation of the Antichrist. When he speaks, he speaks out against God. He speaks out in total disregard for God as he sets himself up as God. He hates God, he hates God's people, and he hates God's praise. The heart and soul of the Antichrist is blasphemy. Once he gets in power, it's open blasphemy everywhere. Look at verse 6, says, And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme, notice, his name. His name. We know God according to his name. Moses said, tell me who you are. And he said, tell him, I am sent you. And then he said, show me. And, and God hit him in the cleft of the rock and, and sent by him all of his attributes, all of his glorious names. That's who God is. It's his name. It's the, the substance of who he is. This one blasphemes everything that God stands for. We can understand That by the time the world has felt the unleashed wrath of God during the seven seals and the seven trumpets, they are either going to repent or they are going to or repent and believe and be saved in the name of Jesus Christ or they're going to blaspheme God. There is no middle ground. There are only two options. And the Antichrist here then is identifying himself with the blaspheming world. I think during the tribulation, people are going to get past the point of being savable. Past the point of being savable. Whatever God does by way of judgment doesn't bring them to faith. There will be no cries of repentance, no cries of mercy. There will only be words of outright blasphemy against God. You say, well, how do you know this, Pastor? Well, go over to chapter 16. Look at verse 8. Remember chapter 16, the the bowls of wrath are now being poured out in quick successive fashion. And the fourth bowl in verse 8 of the angels poured out upon the sun and it was given to it, that is to the sun, to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give him glory. You think that after all that has gone on, they might in some way beg for mercy and say, God, be merciful to us, a sinner. 
But they do not. They simply raise their fist in the face of God, the one who has power over these things. They still know God's invisible attributes are clearly being seen. They know who ultimately has the power, even though they say, who is like this? Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against him? They know who God is, and they are saying to God, we hate you. They blaspheme God. They blaspheme all of his characteristics. The text here tells us they blaspheme his dwelling place and those who dwell there with him. Anything associated with God himself is blasphemed. It is blasphemous words of hatred for anything and anyone attached with the true God. But notice, it's not just words. It's also war. It's war, verse 7, and it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. You remember back in Daniel chapter 7 when we briefly took a look at that a few Weeks back, Daniel said in verse 25, he will wear out the saints of the highest one. He'll wear out the saints of the highest one. Talking about the Antichrist in Daniel chapter 7. He pursues them with an unending pursuit and he is given power to kill them. War with the saints and to overcome them. Listen, this is worldwide licensed killing of the followers of Christ. Enforced worship of the beast and licensed killing of anybody who attaches themselves with Jesus Christ. Remember, remember the tribulation is a Jewish time. It is primarily a Jewish time. It is a time when God is primarily working to call back his people, his promised people of the old covenant to himself. And when the Antichrist sets himself up as God in the temple in Jerusalem that is yet to be built, This kind of persecution will come upon those who side with Christ. Jesus warned them of these things in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, Jesus said this, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not has been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and will never and never will be. And then he says these comforting words, and if those days had not been cut short, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. No one would be saved. It would be tragic for everyone, even during the tribulation, had God not cut those days short. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. But for the sake of my chosen ones, for the sake of those who are mine, who I've marked out with my divine choice, they will be saved. For the sake of them, I've cut this short. My wrath is is hemmed in by the fence of my glorious mercy upon those whom I am saving. What a great promise of God. And even though verse 7 says it's given to him by God, we understand that allowed by God to the Antichrist to make war with the saints, saints, holy ones, hagias, those who, who know Christ, those who have a relationship with God, which it's been given to him to make war with those saints of that time and to overcome them, yet God says that time is cut short. 
been allowed by God for that to happen, for his glory, for the good of the people, for the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And so the Antichrist here is leading a worldwide slaughter of those who believe during the tribulation. He's attempting to exterminate all who believe in Jesus Christ, and especially the Jews. He's been given power to kill them physically, but he will never kill those who know Christ spiritually, ever. He may kill them physically, but he will never crush their faith. He will never kill their faith. And by the Antichrist devices, these glorious saints of the tribulation are translated to glory. God is using the Antichrist as an instrument of His grace to translate those who are in that time to glory as the Antichrist kills them for not worshiping Him. And none of their faith will fall. It will stand strong in the midst of death. You say, how do you know that? How do you know they'll stand strong? Because of what verse 8 says. And all who dwell on the earth will worship Him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. The implication there is that all those who have will stand strong. This is God's election. This is God's preservation. This is the reality of assurance for the believer. The assurance that God has brought you into His family and that no one can snatch you out of His hand. You cannot get out of salvation once God saves what God is saying. Let's listen to the words of Jesus to the Jews in John chapter 6. The Jews are grumbling about him because he, he said, I'm the bread of life that came down out of heaven. And they're saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? And Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble. Don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, Jesus says, listen, why do you grumble? You're you're, you're clueless to the reality of salvation. Listen, it's only by God's drawing you to me, and when you're drawn to me, guess what? All that the Father has given to me, I lose none. I will raise them up on the last day. They will not fail. They will not fall. The Jews struggled with that. Struggled with that concept over and over and over and over again. In John chapter 10, Jesus was once again sharing with them these hard, difficult things. And in verse 27, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. No one. This is the same God who who already has set forth the whole entire plan of redemption from beginning to end. This is the same God who is carrying out all the wrathful uh, consequences of the tribulation. This is the same God who speaks there, I will lose none. Why? Because my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. So no one's faith will fail. Why? Because true faith is a gift from God. It is preserved by God. And so the promise of God and the faith of the saints is secure. Why? Because it's the power of God. It's not the power of man. 
It's not the power of a, of a strong will to just stand there and I'll grab myself up by my bootstraps. And boy, I certainly hope if this happened to me, I would be able to stand. Listen, if you know Jesus Christ, you will be able to stand. Because you didn't get the faith. It was a gift from God. And God brought you into his family. And if God brought you into this family, he secures you in that family. You can never be lost. And then Revelation chapter 13, we get number four, this last part of the entire description. And we get this conclusion in verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. Kind of an interesting way to end that, isn't it? Kind of seems a bit strange that these words would even be here. They don't necessarily seem to fit. But this is God's way of saying, listen, listen up to me. You better be listening to me. You better be paying attention to all of this. That's why he's saying, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. It's reality. This is coming. It's just like Jesus said in, in Matthew uh, 24, let the reader understand this is God's way of saying, listen, pay attention to this. This isn't some fantasy. This isn't some story. This is reality. It is coming. This is a call for us to realize the direction the world is going, folks. It's a call for us to realize that some saints are going to be alive during the tribulation. There's going to be some who are in it. Not the church, but there will be saints in the tribulation. And then he says in verse 10, If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone's killed with the sword, with the sword he must, or, or, or kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. I think he's simply saying, listen, don't fight against God's designed plan. Don't fight against it. As a saint, stand strong through it, but don't fight against it. In other words, you don't need to be a militant Christian against the Antichrist. You just simply need to live for Christ. Trust yourself to the one who judges righteously. Those who are saints during the tribulation, he says, listen, you'll suffer at the hands of Antichrist. That's true. That's the way it's going to be. Don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. If you're destined for captivity, you're going to be captivated. You're going to to go to captivity. If you fight with the sword, you're going to die with the sword. Don't fight against that. Our weapons aren't earthly weapons our weapons are spiritual weapons god's going to be glorified and for the antichrist nothing will be gained by killing you christ will be honored every saint is secure eternally here is the perseverance and faith of the saints standing strong in the midst of trouble every believer is more than a conqueror all he's saying listen these things are coming the antichrist is coming he's going to be worshiped The world is moving that direction. His operation is against God and against the saints of God. And he will, in fact, even overcome them and kill many of them because they don't worship him. But don't fight against that. Just honor Christ. Just honor Christ. What a glorious plan of God. As he deals with sin, deals with the father of lies, Satan himself. What a glorious plan. All of human history is proceeding in that direction. We're just part of it. We're watching it. It's going towards the ultimate climax when Jesus Christ will return. One day there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Satan will be gone forever. Sin will be vanquished forever. And you know what? God has told us ahead of time so that we will not be deceived. Doesn't that that just thrill your soul? You don't have to be deceived. You don't have to not know. God knows it all. Just follow Christ. We will get more next time. Let's pray.
Father, we are grateful, grateful for your plan that you're in charge of it all. Frightening as it may be from our perspective to see the unleashing of your righteous holiness upon sin. But really, we've already seen that in its ultimate extent. We saw you pour out your wrath on Christ as he hung on the cross and died for sinners like us. By your grace, you drew us to yourself. You caused us to repent. You gave us faith. We are now children of yours. Left here for a time that we might be instruments of yours, an instrument of grace to the gospel of Jesus Christ to others who do not know you, those who are currently rejecting you. God, we pray that you mitigate their foolishness, that you cause them to see your mercy, and that through the kindness of you and the mercy of you, they might repent of their sin and come to know Christ. Thank you for these things um, that you showed John that we now see and we can be encouraged in our own hearts that we're secure in Christ and that we can proclaim you boldly to a lost and dying world regardless of where we are in the time frame of history so that others might know Christ, so that your name would be glorified. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.